0: From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. So one of the more interesting quirks of the modern tech world is that there's a really important company at the center of everything that doesn't make anything, but its work is in your phone, it's in your TV, it's in your car, maybe even your laptop, or the data centers that keep all these things working. I'm talking, of course, about ARM, a chip design company that's been through quite a lot these past few years. ARM designs the instruction sets for modern chips. Qualcomm's chips are ARM chips. Apple's chips are ARM chips. Samsung's chips are ARM chips. It's the heart of modern computing. ARM licenses the instruction set to these companies who then go off and actually make chips with all sorts of customizations. And this business model has been a runaway success. Basically, every smartphone runs an ARM processor. Apple's Macs now run ARM processors. And everything from cars to coffee machines are showing up with more and more ARM processors in them. So today I'm talking to Rene Haas. He's the newly minted CEO of ARM. He's only been on the job for six months, but that comes after a wild sequence of events that saw ARM get bought by SoftBank, which then tried to sell it to Nvidia, but that deal was blocked, not just by regulators, but by a consortium of ARM's biggest customers that compete with Nvidia. So the deal got iced and now ARM is set to go public which, well, the company said it would never do. So there's a lot to talk about. And of course, I was curious about some basics. How does ARM make its money? Who are its real customers? And how is ARM affected by the chip shortage since they don't actually make the chips? This might be the most complicated company of all. A couple of notes before we start this conversation got directly into the weeds. IoT is short for Internet of Things. It's basically smart home stuff, sensors around the world. ECUs are electronic control units. They're the tiny embedded systems that control everything in your car from the engine to the power windows. ADAS or ADAS is advanced driver assistance systems. That's automatic braking or adaptive cruise control or lane change detection, things like that. SOC is system on a chip. That's a very important term. That's a CPU and GPU integrated into one package. When we talk about smartphone chips, we are basically talking about SOCs. Okay, that takes care of that. Let's get into it. Rene Haas, CEO of Arm. Here we go. Rene Haas, you are the CEO of Arm. Welcome to Decoder.
2: Thank you very much, Nealey.
1: I am very excited to talk to you. You are pretty much the new CEO of Arm. It's been six months, seven months.
2: I'm definitely new. It's been six months, but it's been a very fast six months. But yes, I am. I am new to the position uh, from mid-February. Not new to Arm. I've been with Arm uh, almost nine years now. But yes, certainly this is uh, the, the latest new role for me.
1: Well, there's a lot to talk about. Lots of changes coming to Arm. You have a plan to go public. You just had your last quarter's earnings. Arm is a fascinating company, though. I think we need to start at the beginning. It is a critical puzzle piece in the entire tech ecosystem we all depend on Arm. What Arm does affects all of us down the line, but it's also pretty opaque because consumers don't really have a relationship to Arm directly, and the way that we have that relationship is mediated by lots of other companies in
2: between. So let's start at the beginning. What does Arm make exactly? So Arm is, uh, is not a well-known company, as you said, and, and not well understood, but we like to think we're extremely important. So starting off, we, we sit inside the semiconductor world. So we are in the semiconductor value chain, and uh, you can essentially find ARM technology in almost any type of semiconductor product and or OEM product. We're in smartphones, we're in laptops, smart TVs. Looking around my desk here, there's probably dozens of ARM processors everywhere. We don't actually build anything. So What we do is we do the designs and we do the design of pieces of the product that we call intellectual property. We build that design and rather than building a chip using our design, we license that design to someone who's going to build the end product. And the primary product we're best known for is the microprocessor, uh, the CPU, which is the brain of almost any type of electronics device. So when you think about the fact that we do these brains and that we don't actually build chips, we license these brains to anyone who builds chips, And we'll license that brain to anybody who will build a chip. There's a lot of ARM brains out there. Kind of reflecting on the numbers, I think, between all the semiconductor companies and OEMs in the world, last quarter, 7.4 billion chips were shipped and built with uh, some type of ARM CPU inside or GPU or some ARM technology, which is a huge, huge number. So the way to think about it is we're in the semiconductor value chain, uh, but we don't build anything. We do designs, and most of those designs are microprocessors who are your customers you know it's funny Neela. in the electronics industry it would be almost harder to say who isn't our customers uh almost anybody you can think of is our customer uh tsmc is a customer samsung is a customer global Foundries is a customer these are people who physically build the chips intel is a customer amd is a customer nvidia is a customer qualcomm is a customer amazon is a customer microsoft is a customer Google is a customer. Then, uh, <laughs> when you get into other parts of the world, you've got Alibaba as a customer, and Tencent as a customer, and ByteDance. So just about, just about everybody uh, is a customer of ours. It's kind of crazy.
1: And how do you make money from those customers? Are they just licensing designs? Are they buying reference chips off the shelf? Are they just paying patent licensing fees? How does that work?
2: Our business model has two components. We have an upfront license fee that Our partners will pay us for access to the technology, and that gives them the rights to build designs using our technology. Uh, If those designs ultimately find their way into production and into an end product, we then collect a per-unit royalty based upon some arithmetic math relative to how the contracts are such. So high level, two sources of revenue. One is what we call licensing revenue, and the other is what we would call royalty revenue. So if I
1: go to Qualcomm and I just buy a Snapdragon chip from Qualcomm, do I have to pay you? Or does Qualcomm have to pay you? Or does someone else pay you?
2: Yeah, you don't, uh, but Qualcomm would. Qualcomm would report to us in that example uh, how many units were shipped that you bought. There's a pre-negotiated royalty rate. And they would send us a, uh, a basically a, a payment to cover those royalties.
1: So let's go to Samsung. Samsung makes its own chips. It designs its own chips. It makes smartphones. Those divisions of Samsung actually have to contract with each other. If I buy a Samsung phone, how does the money flow back to you? A Samsung phone with an Exynos chip in it, not a Qualcomm chip. Because some Samsung phones have Exynos chips from Samsung and some have Qualcomm chips. Let's specify
2: a Samsung chip. Here's the beauty of the ARM business model, right? Qualcomm uses our technology, so does Samsung Exynos, as as you gave. So in the case of when a Galaxy phone ships, we're likely getting paid we're getting paid by Qualcomm. If that product went out with Qualcomm, and in the case of Samsung, we're getting paid. It depends on the licensing arrangements we have with partners, but typically they're with the semiconductor arms of these companies, no pun intended. <laughs> so the the chip, the chip division, whoever we have signed a contract with, let's just say in the case of Samsung, it was the chip group, then the chip group would be making the payments. The All
1: right, last one, top of the difficulty ladder. I think is Apple, which has a very unique kind of license for me, I believe it's called an architecture license. They fully design their own chips. I don't think they use a lot of your designs, but it's ARM intellectual property. When I buy an M2 MacBook Air, how do you get
2: paid? Commercially, very similar. We have contracts with uh, companies like this mentioned, like Apple, and they'll pay us a royalty just like Amazon does, no different. Can
1: anyone go get that kind of license that Apple has, where they get to use your IP and design their own stuff completely?
2: You refer to an architectural license. What that basically means is it gives the rights to a company to build what we would call an ARM compliant uh, processor. And what we require from uh, anyone who does that is, and this is a very important point, is that the CPU that they build, uh, and they can make MITRE modifications to the uh, the, uh, microarchitecture. And by that, I mean how it's actually physically put down on the chip. But what they can't do is modify it in such a way that it doesn't run ARM instructions. And that's really important because at the end of it all, we have to maintain software compatibility such that if anyone is running an ARM processor somewhere, whether it's something that we build or it's something that a partner who has an architectural license, it has to be compliant to running ARM software. So that's really the, the, the way to, to think about it. Architectural licenses, we don't have many. It's hard to do. Um, we build really good CPUs. <laughs> and uh, I'm biased, of course, but we build really good CPUs. And uh, it's very, very hard to to build a CPU that's ARM compliant. That's a, a whole lot different and better than what uh, than what we do. So there aren't many people who do that. Uh, it used to be more, but now it's a smaller and smaller number. It, a, it's hard. And, and B, uh, it's hard to find the people. These are hard, hard teams to go off and build. So most companies look at it and say, if I'm building an SOC or a system on chip, and I've only got so many precious engineers to differentiate my product, differentiating the ARM CPU is probably not the best place to spend my energy. Better places are around areas like a camera or a modem or I.O. or things that we don't do.
1: When Apple ships a product or another architecture licensee ships a product, do you have teams that go and validate that it's running the ARM instruction set and they haven't broken the rules? Or are you just on our system? Is that we don't want to piss off Tim Cook too much?
2: we uh have a set of uh, requirements and we have a a compliance suite that we test against so we have to essentially verify that uh, end quote what they have built is arm compliant so we run tests against that to basically see if it can run arm instructions and run arm code and compile properly and the compiler doesn't break and uh somehow you're not able to Uh, recognize the right instructions. So yeah, short answer is we do uh, have a set of compliance tests for anyone building an architectural uh, license-based design.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask these questions and just sort of close the loop of here's this company that sits at the center of almost every modern chip save the Intel and AMD CPUs that people might encounter. But it's somewhat opaque. And I think that, that loop closing where you actually validate, okay, this is ARM stuff that works in the ARM way. I think most people don't understand that. So I wanted to ask that set of questions, just got a feel for the
2: business. They're very important questions, though, because one of the things that I think has, has helped us be so um, ubiquitous in our history is the fact that whether it's an ARM implementation or an architectural implementation, they run software targeted for the ARM ISA the same. Just it doesn't break. Uh, meaning, you know, there's been a lot of... Um, casualties in the CPU graveyard, where they've allowed extensibility, meaning they'll allow customers to add custom instructions. And while that might sound innovative and cool, what really makes a a CPU architecture relevant in the long term is developers just know it's going to run, and they're not having to worry about uh, if a developer is writing a piece of code for an OEM and ARM is embedded, the developer doesn't want to know, or need to know, or have to, will even be in a position to know, of, oh, I'm designing a thermostat, it's got Bob's chip inside, and Bob's got some extra instructions. I need to take advantage of that, because they may not know in another OEM device whether that has the arm chip that has those instructions. So leveling the playing field, just making sure that the software data set looks the same is really important. And our... Our four founders did a fantastic job of adhering to that and making it quite principled. And and you can see it's really benefited us now. You have a lot of customers. Those
1: customers are all pretty full-throated competitors of one another in various ways. I have talked to a lot of executives in positions like yours, a lot of standards, body executives, what have you. They all strike me as doing a lot more political work than engineering work or research work. How is that split for you? Do you think that you're a politician just sort of keeping everyone on the level playing field or are you deep in the weeds of processor design?
2: Well, we're definitely deep in the weeds of processor design. I mean, that's what we do at the end of it all. uh, We spend a lot of time and energy on developing these CPUs. We spend a lot of time and energy on the software ecosystem. We spend a lot of time and energy really ensuring that the products are leading edge, solve partners' problems. One of the things that's different a bit about us, I think, is the fact is we we deal with everybody. We have to maintain a consistency of how we manage our relationship with partners, and that's really around access to technology, that's around access to bugs, that's around access to people. The world kind of relies on Arm, and uh, again, as you said, we're kind of a little opaque, and, and having me say on a podcast, or relies on my arm, and someone listening says, "I rely on you guys. I don't even know you guys." <laughs> but at the, at the same time, we take very seriously how we manage those relationships with uh, with our partners. So uh, the politics of it, maybe you know, not so much. We really just take the relationships pretty seriously and make sure that, that fairness is uh, at the top of what we do.
1: Well, let me give you just like another very dumb example, and maybe you can you can laugh this one out the door if you want to, but it strikes me as instructive. A couple of years ago, we talked to the people who run HDMI, which is like the industry standard for how you plug PlayStations into TVs. And I was like, there's this one feature of HDMI that just like doesn't work well, where you're sp- your one remote is supposed to control everything. And honestly, the answer is like, they threw up their hands in the air. I was like, that problem's too hard to solve. No one wants to take it on and everyone will disagree with them. So just never, it's never going to get solved. And that was basically the answer. And I, I understood why politically that was the answer. That's the lowest stakes of all, right? I just want to plug my DVD player into a TV and make the remote control work. And the politics of it were effectively insurmountable. Your politics are way harder stakes, and you're not an industry standards body. You're a company that reports earnings, that wants to IPO, that has to grow those earnings for shareholders. How do you manage that kind of tension? We
2: really try to stay as neutral as possible, and we're known to be the Switzerland of the electronics industry, which is not a bad parallel because we try to stay neutral. We don't try to to pick winners. We're involved in the ecosystem of ecosystems. And by that, I mean, if you start at the lowest level of semiconductor value chain, Global Foundries, Samsung, TSMC, Intel, all the people who build chips, you have to work with all of them. We have to make sure that our technology is going to be able to be built on every semiconductor process in the world, uh, which, which requires investment across all those partners, all the way up the stack. When you think about Android and Linux and Windows and all the the major operating systems that we support, we got to make sure we're there. We're there too, and we really don't try to to play favorites in terms of advantaging one versus the other. I'm not sure how we would do that at the end of this day, you know, it, <laughs> it, it, but. But what it means uh, is that we stand on the shoulders of a, of a pretty big ecosystem. And I would say it's an ecosystem of ecosystems because there are design tools, there are fabrication processes, there are software operating systems, there's middleware. So we work a lot with uh, interest groups we and we create them. Um, we don't really work so much with standard bodies, but we do work very, very heavily with all the players that I mentioned, just making sure that we understand everything that they're trying to do from a, from a roadmap standpoint and ensuring that we're going to be as compliant as possible because at the end of the day, since we license technology to someone building a chip, that person building a chip wants the broadest opportunity that they have where they build it, what software it runs on it, and how it ultimately goes into production.
1: It's a very idealistic answer, but I want to come back to it in the context of Arm being a publicly traded company, because I think that might change the dynamics a little bit. But let's hold on to that for one second, because I just want to get through some of the additional basics of understanding Arm. How many people work at Arm?
2: The last headcount number I saw was probably 5,800 plus or minus with contractors probably north of 6,000.
1: And then how are they structured? Is it all chip design? Is it lawyers (laughs) patent attorney and chip designers in a one-to-one ratio how does that work it is
2: definitely not one-to-one lawyers to engineers i'll tell you that much
1: (laughs) (laughs) some companies are definitely one-to-one lawyers and engineers
2: we're nowhere close to that we are mostly engineers Uh, most of our engineers are in the uk arms headquarters are in cambridge north of london a couple hours we have a few different sites across the UK. We have uh, engineering sites in um, France, different parts of the Nordics. We have a design center, a couple of them in the United States, in uh, Arizona and Texas. And uh, we also have a, a fair bit of design engineers in, uh, in India, Bangalore, and Noida. Most of our employees are engineers. Our legal department is. Pretty darn small. And if I was just, I had the thumbnail ratios, it's, it's the proportions are, are pretty large relative to the number of engineers, and number of lawyers. Uh, we've done a very, very good job relative to understanding how our licensing model works, how to protect our intellectual property. So, yeah, we don't have a, a huge um, legal department, but we have a lot of engineers because these products are really hard to build. And then who reports to you? How's your team structured? I'm the CEO, and I have the classic chief financial officer, chief people officer. Uh, head of legal uh, reporting into me. We are organized around business units. So we have a, a vertical line of business structure. We have automotive, we have IoT, we have uh, infrastructure and client. So I have those GMs that report into me. I also have a, a chief architect who reports into to me and I have our uh, head of sales and head of engineering. So as I'm listing it here, yeah, it's a lot of direct reports, but that's what the team looks like. It's uh, mostly people oriented around engineering in the business. With the classic uh, functions around people, legal, and finance. All right, and then here is the
1: classic decoder question—the one that everyone comes on to answer. I think anyone comes on to answer this. But I ask everybody, even at ARM for nine years, you have been the CEO for six months. How do you make decisions? What's your framework?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to have to cheat a little bit and say that I had dinner with uh, with Tony uh, Fidel, who I know you interviewed <laughs> uh, a, couple of, a, a while ago, and. Um, You know, I I liked his analogy of opinion-based decisions versus database decisions. And I would say that the more uh, white that you get in your beard and your hair, you get more comfortable with opinion-based decisions because pattern matching starts to come into play. The History repeats itself because humans repeat themselves. You know, we are humans and humans uh, make the same successes and mistakes. So, I'm a mix of of opinion and data, and probably uh, the more experienced I get, the more I rely on intuition because experience helps. You know, it's the classic for those of folks who are, who are football fans out there. You know, why is Tom Brady at 45 still playing quarterback, <laughs> even though physically he's playing with guys half his age? Hard to fool him. He's seen it all. Now, our business is far more complex than professional football, but it helps a lot. So, yeah, short answer to your question is I, re- I rely on both. But I, I probably move faster now than I did when I was younger because opinion helps me a lot more than data because my gut is is more um, intuitive. My
1: understanding of Tom Brady is that he doesn't eat any tomatoes and like eats <laughs> avocado ice cream every day. Is that is that on your list? He
2: is kind of like Benjamin Button. You know, every time you look at him, he looks <laughs> younger and younger and younger. Uh, I do have weird dietary habits. You know, and folks will know in the UK, I, I, I'll have like uh, yogurt and granola every day for uh, for lunch and. My assistant, when I'm in the UK, will almost preempt me and say, I've got your, your yogurt <laughs> in the fridge. It's got your name on it. Uh, part of it part of it, just comes down to, and, and I've seen this from other, other leaders, not that I would put myself in that category of being super successful, but reducing the number of decisions you have to make, I've always kind of found personally helps me. I wear kind of the same attire. I uh, eat kind of the same thing, which it's like, okay, it's, it's food I like. It's stuff I know. It's uh, one less thing to worry about.
1: I've definitely found the same to be true with myself over time. <laughs> it helps that I picked really cool clothes. That's That's been yeah, my trick. Um, I would not
2: say I'm there. <laughs> I'm
1: kidding. Let's talk about a big decision then. So you're the new CEO. Arm famously got caught up in the sort of SoftBank Vision Fund turmoil, where SoftBank raised a lot of money for something called the Vision Fund, billions upon billions of dollars, invested in a lot of companies, bought Arm outright, which is a big deal then tried to sell it to NVIDIA when the Vision fund got a little shaky. You describe yourself as Switzerland. The industry basically lobbied as hard as it could against that deal. We do not want NVIDIA to own this core uh, CPU technology, processor design technology. That's Qualcomm. That's Apple. It's down the line. The industry said, don't do this. Government said they would block the deal. SoftBank backs off. You arrive as a new CEO. You say, we're going to take the company public. That's a big flip. Your predecessor was adamantly opposed to taking this company public for that reason we were talking about earlier, that the pressure of having to grow revenue puts some of the model of being neutral and being a, a fair provider to everyone at risk because you could cut special deals to increase revenue, to extend the instruction set. Those pressures will arrive. But that's your decision. How did you make that decision?
2: Well, the NVIDIA transaction basically came apart at the end of last year and we announced the, uh, the, the change and I, and I took over the next quarter, or not sure, long after, I think it was mid-Feb. I took over, and our fiscal year ended in March, and we were finally able to, to talk about our financial results. We hadn't talked about our financial results for a while. Uh, we were very quiet during the Nvidia period, and when we announced our revenues for the year, we had record revenues of you know well over two billion dollars. We did two two point six, for example. We had never done anything over two. We had a operating margin of nearly forty percent. People thought we were losing money, and if you fast forward to this quarter, even a margin was it was even higher than where we ended last year, north of fifty and seven hundred million in revenue, four hundred fifty in royalties. So, several of the calls I had with with analysts and reporters were, "Where did this come from? And what what kind of funny math are you doing? And is this some <laughs> pro forma equation?" But actually, we knew we were doing okay because you know, back to my time at ARM. Not long after SoftBank bought ARM, uh, we uh, reorganized. We created two business units. I took over what was classic ARM, and we began a pivot towards uh, other markets. And that pivot was not only a business model, but it was products. We knew, for example, that a couple of things on data center was, was happening. We knew that TSMC was getting really good on process. We knew we were making good headway on software workloads. And we felt if we uh, advanced our investment into some specific instructions such as SME and SVE for uh, these are vector extensions for specific workloads on, on hyperscalers, we could make some hay in terms of the hyperscaler market. And so what you're seeing now... And that,
1: that, Mark, but just to be clear for everyone, that's the cloud computing market. That's your Google Cloud, AWS stuff. Yeah,
2: that's cloud. And AWS, significant partner for us. They announced Graviton, two. They announced some fairly eye-popping numbers relative to 40% improvement price performance over other architectures. Uh, so for us, we've diversified our business. And by not only developing different products, but also addressing it through different parts of the business model strategy, we knew our business was going to be, uh, end quote, okay. And, uh, and all of the results you're seeing now, uh, financially, which are terrific, and the team has done a fantastic job on, really come from work that was done a few years ago, because you know, you're not going to be able to see royalty results on units that happen overnight, back to the, how we work we develop ip that ip has to go to a customer they have to build a chip that chip has to go into the product the product has to be qualified it can take three or four years so we feel good uh, about where we're going and we also feel really good that in the areas that we have been investing in cloud uh, automotive iot these are large secular growth areas that i think we're very well positioned for
1: let me push on that though so I spend a fair amount of time on CNBC. I'm a tech journalist. That's a business channel. I'm always struck at, you know, CNBC is for investors and they end every interview with like, and what's going to happen next quarter? And I appreciate that. That's their job and they're really, really good at it. But you're describing multi-year bets, right? You made some bets two years ago that are paying off handsomely now. Do you think that quarter to quarter investor pressure will change how you operate the company? Because that seems like the risk.
2: I think anytime you're a public company, that that is part of how the, uh, you know, part of how the world operates. I, I can't talk too much about what life would be like in a public company. I'm under pretty strict orders to stay in my lane on that. <laughs> uh, but there's, I, a,
1: there's one of those few lawyers, the
2: company is about to run into the room. Yeah, exactly. They, they, uh, so I can't really say too much about that. But what I can say is we're pretty confident in terms of the secular growth that we're seeing in the markets we're involved in.
1: We need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the chip shortage.
2: You knew that was coming. Stick around.
0: Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Even if you're not into the gushy stuff, Valentine's Day is an obvious time for acts of kindness and showing your appreciation. Well, this Valentine's Day, you can show your wallet some love, too, by cutting down an expense we all have, your phone bill. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless phone plans, starting at just $15 a month, with high-speed 5G data and unlimited talk and text. You get great rates whether you're buying for one or you're buying for a family. And at Mint Mobile, family plans start at just two lines. You also don't need to get a new device. When you buy a new Mint Mobile plan, you can use your own phone and keep your same phone number and contacts. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Call your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mintmobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from hymns. It can be a challenge for men to speak up about their health, and oftentimes that's rooted in the fear of being vulnerable but there are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. HIMSS knows how you feel, which is why they are looking to provide you with the help you need, discreetly. Introducing HIMS, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back.
1: You just expressed some confidence in automotive and IoT and cloud. Cloud seems, that market exists. It's growing, right? Cloud computing, data centers, Arm has made the move. That seems like it's definitely going to happen. I talked to a lot of car CEOs. We spend a lot of time on the Vergecast talking about smart home stuff and era things. Those markets aren't quite there yet. They haven't really made the turn. Is that something that you can drive as a CEO of Arm, or is it more we're going to have the designs ready. We're going to have the products ready for when the cars actually become totally networked
2: computers on wheels. So if you think about a car, people think about electronics in the car and they quickly automatically go to autonomous driving and mm-hmm. uh, what you see with crews and such. And that's just one dimension. If you think about what goes inside an automobile and the amount of processing that takes place, the amount of processing in the car, you have your your instrument panel Which is all digital and completely computerized and almost all of that runs on arm you have the powertrain anything involved with the mirrors the brakes all of that that is quickly moving to arm and by that i mean there's a number of things happening in the car that are moving towards arm that are not having to do with the instrument panel or the autonomous in the powertrain you have many of these older ecus that were standalone units. They might have an old proprietary microcontroller in them. They don't communicate to other parts of the car. All these ECUs are being redesigned. And inside a car, there's maybe 50, 60, 70 ECUs. I mean, there's lots of them. Each one of those might have had an old proprietary microcontroller that had no connectivity, that had no memory management unit, didn't talk to other parts of the car. So the car becomes a highly networked piece of equipment. And then you add on autonomous and ADAS, which is an, an area for, for ARM to grow. So I think for us, the, the car is a bit of a sandbox of, of multiple technologies, instrument panel, powertrain, powertrain slash ECUs, and then autonomous. And autonomous, by the way, is a huge, huge opportunity for us because of the fact that go back to the data center, you know, what really matters in the car in terms of compute is, performance and efficiency. You can't have a server in your trunk running off an EV and, and be able to, uh, <laughs> to be successful at it. Uh, and some of the cars today, that's kind of what they are. They're, they're kind of a server in a trunk. That's going to get better over time. So, you know, we're very, very positive about the automotive market. We've been growing very, very fast there. So is that
1: you're going to take some of those engineers that you have and say, go figure out ECUs, go figure out an engine controller or a body control module that'll work across cars. And then people, NVIDIA can come and license that and sell it to Ford.
2: Already happening. yeah. And what ends up happening with these CPUs that go into automotive, what matters there? Well, efficiency matters, power matters, functional safety matters. You have to have all of the redundancy to make sure that this can run in a safe way. Some people do it in software through compute libraries, but people would prefer to do it in in hardware because it's more... Secure, uh, it's much more effective. So we've developed automotive processors that have functional safety embedded. We do graphics processors that have functional safety embedded. Those are things we weren't doing in the past. We would basically kind of roll out a, here's a, here's a general purpose thing. Use it wherever you want to use it. That was one of the things we, we did the, the big change on the last number of years. So automotive is going to be a very large market for us.
1: We're talking about the future, but let's bring it back to just the present for a second. We are in the middle of something that has been a chip shortage for a long time. It may or may not be coming to a close. Intel and NVIDIA just had pretty bad quarters. Intel is saying we're actually going to raise prices. Where do you sit in the chip shortage? Is that something that affects you right now? Is that something you see coming and going? Right, You're kind of divorced from the actual hardware piece of this.
2: We're divorced from it from the standpoint that we don't build anything, but we're very linked to it in the sense that our royalty model is linked to how many components that people ship. So for sure, we have a, a an eye to it in, in a very big way. But back to the earlier discussion, we're pretty diversified in terms of the end market. And the other thing that's happening is just more and more CPUs are being used in these SOCs uh, where... Apps processors for mobile phones might have used one CPU and went to four CPUs. The, the cluster for compute is nine or ten different CPUs yeah. now, right? You have t- ten CPUs, and that's just the apps processor. Uh, when you had taken to control, the touch sensor, uh, anything with a display and a camera. So what we're seeing is even though units have been softening in some markets such as smartphones, we've been sort of shielded by it just from the standpoint of where um, our product goes Broadly speaking, semiconductor shortages, boom bust, that's the nature of our our world. I do think this one is a little different. First off, it's not all technologies, it's not all areas. Um, IoT is strong, industrial is strong, uh, cloud is strong, different nodes are strong. Sometimes the older technology, 14 nanometer, 20 nanometer, 40 is, is kind of hard to get. Uh, and all these devices in these complex systems require a mix and match, and you only need one thing not to be ready to have a problem. And then when you layer on top of that with COVID and uh, the world not as flat as it was three or four years ago, doesn't take much for one supply <laughs> chain to get messed up, and next thing you know, a product such as toilet paper, which one would say. How are we short on toilet paper? Which, by the way, this is an aside. I remember reading into that, trying to understand a bit more about the problem. And one of it was really around the fact that these toilet paper factories had a very, very fixed set of equipment that did commercial toilet paper for industries and businesses and residential toilet paper. And when we all went home and stopped going into the offices and to shopping malls and movie theaters, the demand from commercial toilet paper to consumer went out of balance, and that's why. <laughs> and that's why the toilet paper thing came. <laughs> and that's a simple. Did you listen
1: to our episode with Willie Shee? I did not. He was on here. He told us the toilet paper thing, and then we talked all about uh, chip and LCD manufacturing. He's great, and he said they had too many SKUs. They were they were selling too many kinds of toilet paper, and they, he told them to reduce it, and that solved uh, a huge part of the problem.
2: Yeah. So that. So now, now think about a car, right? That needs all kinds of diodes and capacitors and resistors and thermal sensors. It's just not the fact that three nanometer is hard to get and a fab is hard to build. It's really all of it. And back to, you know, what's a little different this time is, and you can tell by the color of my hair, I've been in this industry a long, long time. I've been in bus cycles where people start putting the brakes on R&D and they just slow projects down. They don't do new things. They stop innovating. I am not seeing that this time. And I think that is because the the digitization of everything the just super high demand for uh, electronics products and how it changes our lives there's just so much innovation going on so we going back to you know what what is our indicator of that it's licensing it's new design starts and it's never been better for us and it's broad it's broad across all markets
1: one of the reasons that r&d is picking up the pace as much as it is is what you're talking about that the world isn't as flat anymore promise of globalization maybe being reconsidered broadly across the globe. Here in the United States, we just passed the CHIPS Act, really incentivizing chip manufacturing in the United States, really incentivizing all kinds of design investments in the United States. TSMC is building in the States. Intel just broke ground on the new fab in Ohio. Do you see that factoring into, okay, all these countries know we're heavily reliant on a handful of fabs that are in Taiwan, that's a geopolitically hot area. We need to move these critical dependencies into our countries. And is that something that you play a part in, or is that something you're just like watching from the sidelines?
2: We're definitely involved in uh, helping in the dialogue. Uh, so wherever we can help, talking to uh, political officials in any country to amplify the need for this, we do. Because I think it's not just an arm issue. It's kind of an industry issue. A single point of failure. Uh, for anything you're doing is, is is not a good thing. And I think the world is, and again, COVID exposed uh, a, a lot of things relative to people just having their eyes open that, oh my gosh, this is a real problem. And uh, I, I give a lot of credit to folks who are, who are driving the CHIPS Act activity because I think it is very important. And by the way, very important, period. Not just very important in the United States, but 50 years from now, there should be world-class fabs in every continent. And uh, we shouldn't have to be worried about geopolitical type of concerns for something that's just like oxygen for how the world operates.
1: One of the realities of how the world operates now, though, is that the bleeding edge process nodes are mostly controlled by TSMC. It's five nanometers, three nanometers. They're way, way ahead of it. They're in control of it. That's theirs right now. Very few other people can compete on that level. And that is your smartphones. That is the the bleeding edge of tech, the older process nodes, 40 nanometers, 14 nanometers that go into cars and other things are deeply constrained, and no one's going to build those fabs anymore. That is not a good investment. How do you see that playing out, right? You've got this tight constraint to TSMC at the bleeding edge. Everyone wants to build capacity there, but no one wants to build capacity for the old stuff. At the same time, all the governments in the world are like, we just need capacity in our countries. What is the dynamic there that you see?
2: You know, full disclosure, I'm not a manufacturing expert, but what I can tell you is uh, what we see is a lot of work being done just relative to how you can transition certain fabs for new work. Uh, Exactly as you said, right, plowing a lot of money into N-3 fabs, you know, people are usually going to be a bit averse for that. So you start to look at, can I convert fabs that we're building a certain process technology and move that to being a logic fab are there memory fabs that can be converted to logic fabs, uh, et cetera. But it is is a very complicated problem because there are only so many factories in the world and so many people that know how to build these things. These companies are public companies. They have to make money. It's a very, very complex matrix. Very, very complex. If you think about Japan, 30 years ago, Japan was world-class and had the logic fabs all over the entire country. And that is essentially kind of weed away to almost uh, almost zero. So I think you know and Japan is looking at ways to 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 reinvent that and getting more fabs back online. So I think you'll see more of the CHIPS Act type of work that was done in the United States across other countries. Korea is mostly, you know, one fab, but I think also has a tremendous amount of capability. It is a complex hairy problem though.
1: How dependent is ARM on TSMC? It feels like a lot of companies are recognizing that they are really, really dependent on one company, which is great, by the way. It's the industry leader for a reason, but there's a lot of dependency there. Do you think about that dependency as you're designing new processor types or architectures? We work really closely with TSMC.
2: I would answer it by saying all fabs are important to us, going back to my Switzerland (laughs) (laughs) comment.
1: There's your politician right there. Yeah,
2: there's the politician, but seriously, they're, they're all important. In an ideal world, we've got lots of people who can build all leading-edge technology because our, generally speaking, um, in, in the smartphones and certainly in the data center, that is usually on the leading-edge processes uh, because people are really trying to squeeze out the most performance that they can, automotive and, and industrial, uh, less so. So any fab doing a leading-edge process is massively important to us.
1: On the flip side, Intel famously was an integrated designer, and fab company for the longest time. They got rocked by the TSMCs of the world, basically. They've got a new CEO. They're breaking that open. They're saying, okay, we're going to open our fab to other people. You just said Intel's a customer. Is that something you're working with them on? Okay, you're going to do fab services for other chip makers. We've got ARM designs. You better be good at making ARM designs.
2: Yeah, I'll bring my politician hat back on for a second. Where We'd love TSMC to be building lots of our products, which they do. We would love Intel to do the same.
1: Are you optimistic about Intel being able to do that?
2: I think uh, Pat has done a lot of the right things. He has a hard job. But at the same time, I think he's done some very, very good work. And uh, we're very, very open to doing more with him. This is going to
1: be another politician answer, but I got to ask it. On the CHIPS Act side, the bill passed, it got signed, everyone's excited. Intel immediately comes in for a lot of criticism. Because they announced they're cutting their capital expenditures and increasing their dividend instead of plowing it into fabs, do you think broadly that's the right move? What kind of timeline should we we be looking at for fabs in the United States?
2: Yeah, gosh, I, I won't I won't second guess Pat's decisions to how he spends his money, but uh, you know, back to the comment you made, we were talking about single point of failure. I think we need to move fast uh, and get these, get these facilities started as quickly as possible, have them online as quickly as possible, and build more um, redundancy and uh, lessen the exposure to single point of failure. I think we need more FAVs.
1: We need to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to Renee about making long-term bets.
0: Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.
1: We're back. Just before the break, we were talking about the CHIPS Act and how it's gonna be years before some of these new fabs come online. So I have to ask you, what kind of timelines do you make decisions on? It seems like, yeah, okay, a bill passes today or someone announces a new fab today, we're not gonna see it for five years. Where do you think about your timeline of decisions?
2: I tend to look that far out. I think the CEO job is in learning six months in, we have lots of responsibilities. I think for me, one of the biggest responsibilities I have is to be thinking about problems five years from now, both a function of the way our business model works and the time that we design a product or the time we see revenue is, is quite long. So I think really thinking about where the opportunities are, where the investments need to be made, where the threats are, where is the puck going relative to system design, software design, setting the process. We think about those things all the time. And we talk about them all the time. It's probably where I spend most of my mental energy, to be honest with you, is thinking about uh, what does the world look like in 2025 and 2026, as opposed to next quarter.
1: There are some long-term bets there that are much more consumer than replacing the server in the trunk of a car. Maybe the hottest trend right now, as it pertains to ARM taking over things, is Apple shifted from Intel to ARM-based processors, their own M-series processors, in Macs that has been an enormous victory for them right they've increased the battery life they've increased the performance these are now basically the best laptops you can buy because of the chips in them is that something arm can help the rest of the industry do or is that well here's the designs hopefully qualcomm can make a chip that lets microsoft and dell do this as well like where do you see that
2: relationship to the industry from from your perspective i think there's more that we can do and probably will need to do going forward and it's not so much because we need to uh, help the industry, but these products are really, really complicated to build. And um, you know, let's talk about the architectural license for a second. You know, there was a belief at some point in time that I need to take an architectural license to build a better CPU to compete against ARM. The IPC, uh, instruction per clock of a microprocessor, is only a micro fragment of what can really tip the design when you think about the memory subsystem The interconnect, the size of the caches, how you interface into other parts of the SOC. Is the SOC in a multi-chip package where you've got die-to-die interconnect? And there are some customers that are really good at that stuff and can figure it out and don't need a lot of our help. But I think increasingly over time, there's going to be sections of the industry that will benefit greatly from ARM uh, helping them and doing more. So it is an area that we we look at very, very closely because I think back to the opportunity going forward, you know, it's very, very clear that the demands of doing system on ships are just gonna get harder and harder. And to get the kind of performance around the product that you just mentioned, it's gonna be more than just, you know, throwing the thing over the wall and and hoping it works out.
1: From your perspective, it kind of doesn't matter who wins as long as they're all ARM chips, right? If Apple takes 100% of laptop market share, that's great for you. If Microsoft and HP and Qualcomm can figure out a competitive Windows on ARM laptop and they take 50% of share, you still get paid. Does it just feel like no matter who wins, you win? Or is it, man, we got to get better at this because Intel is still taking a big chunk of the potential royalty pool from us?
2: I think the way to think about it is if the products are shipping with the ARM ISA, it's a good thing for us. And if there's an alternative ISA being used, it means it's not using the ARM ISA, so less good for us. So we look to essentially, uh, I think when I was in my previous role, I had a little moniker under my name on the website that that we did on the PR team that I helped with It was basically said, uh, wherever computing happens, ARM will be there. And I think wherever some level of compute is taking place, if ARM is there, and you would stand back and say, oh, it's a thermostat, or it's my microwave, or it's my Polycom, or my smart TV, or my laptop, or whatever it is. And then the second is, yeah, that's ARM-based, that's pretty good.
1: Okay, but you, you just said wherever computing has happened. Where computing happens for most people is like their laptops and desktops. And I have heard about Windows on ARM for like 13 years and it hasn't happened. Are you just content to let Apple eat the industry? Or are you saying we got to push on this because there's someone else's instruction set, namely Intel's, that is still dominating in that one extremely huge industry?
2: We are very, very aware of uh, Somebody just ba- backing up for a second. I was in pre- at a previous company working on Windows RT. So you know, back, oh, back on your 13 year journey, <laughs> I was the, I was the GM of that product line. I was with Nvidia before I joined ARM and uh, that was my product line. So uh, we've made massive progress on this. And I think we're like the Borg that's not going to stop. I think the tipping point is really there. You know, Nile, I, the very first press interview I did on the Windows RT laptop, I remember meeting with a, a set of reporters. First question they asked me was, does it run iTunes? <laughs> and we were like, ah, oh, shh, shh, bang, bang, bang. No, it did not run out. We <laughs> It did not. did not. Yeah, it did not. We, we didn't have a port. Uh, Apple wasn't helping us. But fast forward 10 years later, streaming audio is what's there. No one really cares about the apps. And, and if you think about all the apps that run on a PC that run on a mobile phone, it's kind of hard to say, okay, so what are the native apps that don't really run on ARM? They're almost all there. So I think the PC thing, you know, stay tuned. We're, we're like the Borg that's not going to stop. We're making great progress. Uh, You can see by the other ecosystems laptops what the capability is. I think that kind of was a wake-up call to the industry in terms of what the capabilities potential might be, and uh, we're going to keep at it.
1: But that wake-up call is due to a very rich company spending a lot of money on a custom riff on your instruction set, right? Like, those are their chips. Are you saying we can, as ARM, develop products that are as efficient performance per watt wise as the m series chips and then we can sell those designs to qualcomm or is it down to qualcomm which i believe also has an architectural license doing it themselves
2: i am very confident that the arm implementations can deliver an extremely compelling performance per watt story 100 confidence in that you don't need an architectural license to let to do that
1: what's the timeline
2: uh, i can't give you a timeline in terms of forward reaching stuff because again my my, my <laughs> team of two lawyers would kill me But uh, (laughs) I'm trying. Stay tuned. You are (laughs) trying.
1: I'm doing my best. That's that's the job. Your job is to dodge. My job is to keep coming.
2: (laughs) You're doing a good job.
1: (laughs) On the Mm. other side of that, with uh, you know, with laptops, uh, desktops, uh, even with car makers, right? I go and sit in a Rivian, and I get told about the GPU and Unreal Engine driving the car. Like graphics performance has become a key differentiator across this industry, across all kinds of products. Uh, You have had some GPUs in the past. You've got new GPUs. They've got a great name, Immortalis. Previously, they were called Mali. Apple's not using your GPUs. If you think about the big GPU vendors, they are not really thinking about performance per watt, right? And and a high-end NVIDIA card, you just need a nuclear reactor in the basement to run that thing, and that's great, and it looks great. How are you going to win in GPUs?
2: We, we actually, we are the number one shipper of GPUs on the planet. Uh, when you just go by, by units. So I remember, sure. I remember that, uh, when, uh, when we were in the Mystic NVIDIA acquisition, Jensen made a key point of that. We're, we are going to stay true to our betting, uh, where performance per watt matters. We're not going to venture out and do 100 watt TDP GPUs and, and try to play in that space. We're going to be in the one watt range and, and try to optimize in that envelope. Uh, and then there are areas where you could start to do more things in terms of multiple GPUs. What we're starting to see is people looking at doing uh, machine learning extensions and potentially doing those kinds of things inside a GPU, which is kind of interesting because the GPU can benefit from some level of AI and machine learning to do shader drawing in a much more efficient way. And at the same time, maybe you can start to wor- move ML workloads onto the GPU. So there, there is a lot of interesting innovation that is gonna be able to take place on, on our GPUs and we're investing heavily in that area. But to be clear, we're going to stay in in an area where performance and efficiency matters.
1: Yes, you ship a lot of GPUs. It's part of the SOC package for a lot of your customers. But the performance per watt from your customers that have their own GPUs or their own GPU extensions are ahead. Is that the same deal where it doesn't matter at the end of the day, they're shipping an ARM ISA and you're getting paid? Or is it, we've got to be competitive here, because otherwise, they'll just move off entirely?
2: GPUs are a little different than CPUs because of the fact that uh, the APIs are ex- abstracted. So performance per watt really, really does matter a lot. And we've done a lot to uh, level the playing field. And with Immortalis, I think we've, we're now ahead in, in a number of areas. You know, the other thing that is very, very critical on these uh, on these GPUs is efficiency in terms of the inter- interface between the CPU and the GPU. So that's also an area that we're investing heavily in. But we have to be on our toes in the GPU market. There's no, no question about it. It's very, very competitive, as you said. You've got people doing their own uh, and you've got other third parties doing products, but at the same time, it is an area we're very focused on and we'll invest. And again, as I said, I think this machine learning AI vector going on with GPUs in the future is a huge opportunity for us.
1: GPUs are a big investment. You've got to spend a lot of money to compete. You've got to spend a lot of money to win the designs. Is that the sort of investment you're making? Because over time you're going to win those products back from the other custom GPUs and extract more of a rate, or is it, just to be competitive at all, we need to have competitive GPUs.
2: It's a little bit more of the, again, I go back to machine learning and AI. If you have a heterogeneous compute system where you've got a CPU, a GPU, and an NPU, I think there will be a point in time where the compilers are gonna be smart enough that they can potentially point parts of the code that could run better on a GPU versus a CPU. And if you think about the entire cluster as an entire subsystem, I think there is long-term benefit to that. So I think it for us, particularly in the system on chip, where you're trying to do all kinds of significant trade-offs to I just don't want that workload to run on the CPU because it's gonna be sucking up unnecessary power. I've got transistors in the GPU that I might be able to use if I'm not drawing. So we believe the GPU A is a pretty critical strategic component and we think over time it's gonna be critical in the SSC for things other than just drawing triangles.
1: Let me zoom out just a little bit. I feel like I can identify the GPU competitors. They're obvious in in one way. One of them just tried to buy you. The CPU competitors are much harder, right? Like who are your competitors just straight up that you think about?
2: On the CPU side? Yeah. Well, I think there's really probably only two choices and biasly, I don't think even they're really choices. (laughs) From an ISA standpoint, you have x86. But sure. if you want to build an SOC on x86, there's only two companies in the world that will do that for you. Yeah, You can do it with AMD and, or Intel. And then there's RISC-V, which is a completely different part of the stratosphere uh, in that it's open source and lots of different versions exist. But the thing with RISC-V is that um, two things. It's an extensible processor, which means... Its strength is its weakness, in my opinion, in that the extensibility will lead to fragmentation. That, I think, has hurt them in terms of getting any kind of software ecosystem. It's really kind of hard to look around and say, what is a major software ecosystem that runs consistently on a RISC-V processor? So where do we see RISC-V today? In a system-on-chip, in a deeply embedded part of the chip where the external programmer doesn't know it exists. Uh, An analogy I might give is, you might put something in your microwave and hit start. The 30-second timer that display is probably ARM because there might have been a little piece of open-source application code that ran on it. The timer that actually turns on the oven and turns it off for 30 seconds, that's probably risk five. So those are really the only two options out there. It's just there's not a great deal. I mean, underneath all that are smaller companies, but those companies really haven't had much traction in markets here. Do
1: you see a world in which... ARM and RISC-V just completely obsolete, x86?
2: That's a, hard, that's a hard thing to call, right? x86 has been around for a long time and has a, certainly has a very, very large installed base, so I, I certainly wouldn't want to um, do anything to disparage what, what they're doing. I think the challenge with x86 is the fact that it only comes from two companies. That in it itself is a, a bit of a limiting factor in terms of how wide it can go. But even those two companies,
1: right? Intel has its own fabs, AMD... There's TSMC, once again. There is that other like manufacturing piece of the puzzle where it seems like those manufacturers over time are going to say, look, we're really good at ARM. We're going to get good at RISC-V. We don't want to be good at x86 anymore.
2: I and mean, I would even argue that they're already really good at ARM, right? So, yeah, it gets hard. it's going to get hard. There's no doubt about it. It's harder.
1: Are there any other competitors on the horizon like RISC-V? I mean, I, I, RISC-V is another one of those things... It's like Windows on ARM. I've heard about it for a decade, and it seems like it's coming up in some of these applications you are talking about. But I just keep hearing about it, and
2: it it doesn't seem to be scaring you very much at all. Because it's all about software. Uh, at the en- at the end of it all, it's all about having a rich developer ecosystem that is able to just tap into writing software. And so, and 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 for us, you know, we 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 think there are. 15, 20, 25 million developers who write on ARM. There are some that know they're writing on ARM because they take advantage of the instruction set. But there are others who don't because it's abstracted away. But the compilers and open source libraries are all there that it makes it just easy to run on. Case in point, smart TV. If you're trying to write a new menu for a smart TV and trying to link into the version of Android that is essentially the kernel underneath, that's ARM. It's all been optimized for ARM. It's just a big advantage in terms of the, the software porting. The libraries all exist. The, the optimizations have been done. And going back to the RISC-V thing, let's just say you tried that on RISC-V, and Company A added 17 new instructions to make their RISC-V thing look a little bit different. The developer's not going to know that. The developer, <laughs> right? How, how is the developer going to take even advantage of that? So RISC-V probably ends up, you know, being reduced to the lowest common denominator.
1: We had Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon on the show a couple months ago. I asked him the same Windows and ARM question. He kind of pointed the blame at software developers, actually. He he said, look, Microsoft, Adobe, the other big ISVs, they've, they've got to get on board. They've got to make this stuff fast. You just said it's all about software. Do you spend time with those companies saying, look, you've got to shift your focus to the future, which is ARM?
2: Uh, when you say those companies, uh, Microsoft's of the world or the Adobe's of the world? Both yes <laughs> yes we spent a lot of time uh, with both and he's not wrong in that ultimately that is where the battle is to be won i think it's much closer and i know like you said you've been, you've been watching it for 10 12 years as as i have as well it's much much closer than it, than it has been because what's happening is not not only is a lot more work being done on the native apps but a lot more of these native apps are already kind of being written for arm and just when you look at the, the two different OSs in the world, that other OS, and I'm using their name and code, they use, you know, look at all the Microsoft apps that just run on, run on their system and they've all been ported that way. So all those Microsoft apps run on your phone. So we're not that far away. And I think when there's a lot of fairly good uh, CPU products on the market that will be competitive with, uh, with the other guy, uh, I think the tipping point will be there. Because to, to your point, what that product proved was two really important things. One was, No compromise performance uh, in a form factor with incredible battery life, Uh, game-changing battery life.
1: I know we're running out of time here. I always ask people what's next for their companies, but I'm going to ask you a more specific question. You announced that would Go public in March of 2023. That's coming right up. Are you still on track?
2: Uh, Unfortunately, there's not much I can say on it. We're, We're in the part of the process now where I can't say much. All right, fine. What's next for Arm? (laughs) Uh, We're going to keep investing in the areas that that I had mentioned. Uh, We think there's really strong growth there. But some of the themes that we talked about earlier relative to these complex system on packages, uh, more and more complex designs, we're looking really, really hard at the ability to do and provide more to the industry because I think there's a huge opportunity now.
1: All right, Renee. thank you so much for coming on Decoder. we, we got to have you back. I want to do a full hour on Windows RT, because <laughs> I I live through that from a very different perspective.
2: Uh, that'll be PTSD for me.
1: This was great. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Renee Haas for taking time to come on Decoder today, and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. We really appreciate it. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke winters And our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.